the bulk of the book, which is Jesus' ministry upon the earth. Here we are in the final section that speaks of Jesus' preparation for that ministry. The Son of God being prepared, being tested, and shown that he is ready for the task that he has been sent to carry out by his heavenly Father. So let's read Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13 about the temptation of Jesus. Luke chapter 4 starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. If you grew up in the state of Tennessee as a child, then there is one word that very often would strike fear into your hearts. Really, it's not a word, it's an acronym, and it is TCAPS. TCAPS. A few of you know what I'm talking about. TCAP tests, which take place every spring, are sort of the, uh, the yearly state evaluation, the standardized test, to see how you're doing. How are the students in school progressing in terms of the things that they're supposed to learn and the things that the school is supposed to be teaching them? These are not unique to Tennessee, and they're not unique to that phase of life. Standardized tests are everywhere all the way through uh, postgraduate studies. But when you have TCAPs or really any other standardized test, the message beforehand was always the same. Get plenty of sleep during this time. Make sure that before you come to school, you eat a good breakfast so you're not hungry during the test. Make sure that you're, in other words, in top physical condition when you come in and that nothing is hindering you when you go to take the exam. But what if it was the opposite? What if the true test was how you did when you were pushed to the max and they said, we're going to see what's really in you. We're going to see what you really know. Don't eat for a week before you come take this test. And do it on no sleep at all. It sounds more like something that goes on in the military than something that would go on in school. What if you were tested on how you did when you were without food and all alone and in desert places and you're most directly tempted or you're directly tempted at your most vulnerable spots? 
Some of us can get easily annoyed when the food takes a little bit too long to come out at the restaurant because after all, we're paying for it, aren't we? Or when we're tired and something or someone keeps us from going to bed right away. Or when we're late and someone has to be driving slow in the lane that we find ourselves in. But uh, what would it be like to be offered supernatural solutions and to have those within your capacity to your greatest desires and be forced to say no? How would you handle that? Well, that's basically what Jesus went through here. He had some real desires, things that in many cases were actually legitimate or partially legitimate for him to take advantage of. And yet, unlike us who fail such little tests all the time, Jesus took the worst that Satan had to throw at him and came back with a perfect score. He passed with flying colors. Now, there are, of course, many temptations in our own day, we know that these are not unique to our time in the sense that they're basically of the same nature as temptations of any time. And there are certainly unique manifestations of temptations in our day. People talk all the time about various types of internet addictions, of ways that we might, uh, that we might be tempted to sin that are unique to the digital age. Uh, there are pressures that come with that that may cause certain temptations to be stronger than others. Um, and yet, basically, temptation has always been something that is out there, all the way from the beginning. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3. No sooner has God made a very good world, but that Satan comes along and tempts Adam and Eve to sin, and does so, of course, successfully. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that there is no temptation such as is common to man. We know that temptations, though they are unique to each one of us and our own particular strengths and weaknesses, they're unique to our time and the place in which we live geographically and socially. Nonetheless, temptations are true for everyone and they are always out there. We do need to know how to overcome these temptations. And this passage does help us with that in some ways. And so we will consider this as we go along because Jesus is extremely helpful for us as an example of how to overcome temptation. But there's something more important than that that's going on in this passage. Luke does not put this here just so we'll know how to overcome temptation, though certainly Luke would be pleased if we did. And Jesus didn't come into the world just to show us how to overcome temptation, though he certainly would be delighted if we do. But what we find here is not just an example what we find here is part of the work of the Savior, of the prophet who came into the world to be our high priest, to bear our sins away, to be the one who would actually succeed in his role as the perfect man and as the perfect ruler that God would send to be over us, to be our deliverer, to be our rescuer, to be our Savior. And the one who defeated temptation, not just so that he could show us how it's done, but the one who defeated temptations to show his own worthiness as the Savior. This is why he did it. Jesus did this because this is who he is and this is who he needs to be if we will be able to put our trust in him. If we'll be able to follow him and to follow after him as his disciples and to say, I believe your word and I believe what you have said and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. So Jesus is the example of how to overcome temptation. Jesus is the one who succeeded 
where Adam had failed in temptation. Jesus is the one who, unlike Israel in the wilderness who failed, succeeded when he is tempted in the wilderness. But most of all, this. Jesus demonstrates that he is, in fact, the Son of God. And that he is in conflict with Satan. And he will be for his entire earthly ministry. And he is going to come out on top. And he's worthy of being followed and trusted because he is the perfect one who never sins even in the face of the greatest temptations. Now in this passage, you'll notice a few things. Uh, You'll notice that the devil tempts him three times. You'll notice that Jesus responds each time with nothing but scripture as we will see. Um, All Jesus does for this whole account is two things. He is led around by someone else and he answers. He doesn't do what they say or he doesn't give in to the temptation. And he is not the one who is sort of charting the course of where he's going to go. He's just led to certain places and then he answers Satan's temptations with the Bible. Those are the two actions that Jesus does here. Now, he's going to do a whole lot more as we go along, but these are the two things that you'll see. That's all he does. Follows, and then he says no to sin using the Bible. It is fairly interesting, isn't it, that he would be led by the devil? He would be led by the devil. Uh, Verse 5, he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Verse 9, he led him to Jerusalem. Most of us would simply say, don't follow him. What are you doing? Why are you following the devil around? And yet this is clearly something that the Spirit of God deliberately wanted Jesus and led him to do. Because he is the one who started this. He, in verse 1, led Jesus around in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. This is not, in other words, something that Jesus chose to go into himself and said, You know, I want to be tempted. Can't wait to get near that. This isn't something that he just came up with. Rather, this is intentional on God's part. He was intentionally tested in the wilderness. And this is because God knew what the outcome would be. Because he knew who his son was. But he still needed to go through it. And so God not only ordained but also carried out by his spirit that Jesus would go through and succeed in this battle against temptation. And that's what we're going to find is the message of this passage then. Jesus perfectly responds to the devil's temptations and shows himself to be God's faithful son who is ready to minister to the people. Again, Jesus perfectly responds to the devil's temptations and shows himself to be God's faithful son who is ready to minister to the people. And so we call this passage, Jesus aces the test. First thing that happens is in verse 1, Jesus is led to the desert. He is led to the desert. Jesus, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit. Just as those who spoke from the Lord were earlier in the gospel according to Luke, so Jesus also is full of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, Elizabeth encounters Mary when Mary comes to her home. And she is immediately filled with the Spirit when she hears the voice of Mary. And she prophesies. Similarly, when John the Baptist was born, his father, who had to that point been mute and unable to speak for nine months, or at least nine months, uh, suddenly had his tongue loosed and was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy. And then, of course, John the Baptist himself was promised to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. 
This filling by the Holy Spirit does describe, or this fact that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, uh, does describe this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit coming upon him as had happened at his baptism in chapter 3, verse 22, when it said, The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. The Spirit came upon Jesus, and he is completely in control. Jesus is ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is upon him as the Messiah in a unique way, and that is the state in which he finds himself from here on out. This is a new state that Jesus is in. He has always been God the Son, but in his humanity, he now has this new anointing. The Spirit of God has come upon him like a dove, and now he acts as the Spirit-empowered, Spirit-directed Son of God. He is led by the Spirit to the wilderness, not in that sort of vague way that sometimes we use the term today, led by the Spirit, as if there is some feeling or some type of urge or nudge or something like that that uh, is somewhat subjective and uh, can't not be known definitively. This is not what's described here. This is a particular way in which the Spirit would come upon certain people during Old Testament times and then later in the New as well to direct them and to give them these things in clear terms that are unmistakable and that are objective. And so here the Spirit of God is doing the same thing. He is full of the Holy Spirit and he returns from the Jordan River where he had just been baptized. So he does this. The Spirit of God then takes him out into the desert. You say, that wouldn't have been my first choice. I don't think I want to go out there. But this is exactly what God had for him. And it's helpful for us to remember that the wilderness or the, uh, what's described here is not the same thing as if you went down the road out toward the mountains and you saw trees everywhere and hills everywhere and streams and so on. The wilderness, as described here, would be largely desert. It would be uh, somewhat less Uh, vegetation going on there or at least somewhat less greenery going on than what we would expect if we think about wilderness in our own area of the world and this is where John himself had actually lived and had done so until the time that he was uh, manifested to Israel in his public ministry of baptism according to chapter 1 verse 80 so here he is the spirit of God directs him to go out into the desert. In fact, Mark's gospel uses the term casts him out or throws him out into the desert. He says, go, get out there. And Jesus follows. Jesus follows the direction that God gives him by virtue of the Holy Spirit who has come upon him in this unique way. And thus the Holy Spirit's ministry to him in this way is Uh, results in two primary things which characterized that of Old Testament saints, empowered by the Holy Spirit. First of all, empowerment, and then second, directing him to where he's supposed to go. And sometimes one or the other would show up, but in this case it's both. Jesus is enabled by the Holy Spirit to do what God says to do, and he tells him where to go, and Jesus follows. He's led out, in this case, to be tested, to be tempted He says here in verse 2, he ate nothing, excuse me, he, uh, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, many of you know this, but this is uh, an interesting word because it carries both possibilities of testing or of tempting. 
And really, the way that you render it depends upon the context in which you find it. There's not a special word for each one. It's just the same word, and it depends on the setting. Much like the word in the Greek language for woman or wife, so that you have to make a decision which way is this being used in this context. So it is here with testing or with being tempted. Now, Jesus is being tested, but because Satan intends for him to sin and is trying to get him to fail the test, it's rendered here as temptations. This is what it is. From Jesus' perspective and from God's perspective, in particular from God the Father's perspective, God knows what the outcome will be. God has a purpose for sending him out there. He is putting Jesus to the test in the right kind of way. He wants him to succeed and he's going to show what he's made of. And so he is being tested in that way. But he is really being tempted. Satan is placing before him things that he wants Jesus to do that would be sin against God. Now, again, I want to remind you, the fact is that the Spirit of God led him into this circumstance of temptation. And this is not something that Jesus just independently wandered into. Uh, When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Among other things, we ask God, do not lead us into what? Temptation. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is appropriate to ask God not to lead us into temptation. And why would we ask him that? Because we might fail in that temptation. We want God to keep us away from that. In fact, it's only a fool that seeks that out. And yet, we also know that sometimes temptation does come as a result of us moving in that direction, specifically because of our own desires. We have something that we want. And we get an idea. And then we go for it. James, the brother of Christ, would later speak to this very point. When he wrote his letter, he wrote in James 1, verses 13 and 14, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. By his own desire. Why do we go for temptations? Is it because God put us in a circumstance that's just too difficult? No. It's because we pursue things that we want. Why does any temptation take root? Why are things so possible for us to fall into? Is this because God has made this happen? No. It's because we have these sinful desires. And so temptation in one regard comes because there is a longing in us for that thing. And in many cases, an inordinate longing or a just directly sinful longing. We want something and we say, I'm going to go get that. But it's not God who is making that happen. And he's not pleased by you being tempted on account of your evil desires. God may see fit for us to go through temptations, but he provides a way out. God saw fit for Jesus to go through temptations, but he wasn't pleased that Satan was trying to get Jesus to fail. He's never pleased by any sinful component of this, even as he sovereignly allows and ordains that we would go through these hardships. But it was his purpose that Jesus would be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So let's look at what he does. What does Satan do? Starting in verse 2, we find... Jesus is tempted by the devil. Jesus is tempted by the devil. He is in the wilderness for 40 days. He is being tempted by the devil. None other than Satan. He is called the tempter. He is called the evil one. He is called the deceiver. 
He is one who hates God. He hates God's purposes. He hates God's people. He hates everything that God loves. He appears throughout biblical history as the one who is the chief opponent of God and of God's kingdom and of God's purposes in the world. And so it is here that he shows up and attacks the one who is at the center of those purposes. It says he was being tempted by the devil. Just as Adam and Eve were tempted and just as men and women throughout history have been tempted, now he comes to tempt the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, for the timeline, how long was he there? It says he was there in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And it's hard to tell exactly what the chronology is of the temptations that were going on during that time. But at least um, he is tempted in these ways at the end of that time. And, but there may have been temptations going on the whole time during that 40 days. That he wasn't just tempted at the end. It's just that these three are sort of the capstones that take place. It's hard to say exactly because the other accounts describe him as simply being tempted by the devil kind of along the way during those 40 days. But here Luke just tells us about the only thing we can know for certain, which is his temptations that took place upon the completion of the 40 days. So Jesus puts himself in the exact kind of situation that you and I would not want ourselves to be in when we're tempted, which is that he ate nothing during those days. So here he goes for 40 days eating nothing. Just as had been done by Moses at Mount Sinai when he received the law. Just as had been done by Elijah when he went to the place of the giving of the law later on in 1 Kings 19, Mount Horeb. Jesus ate nothing as well. And when they had ended, he said, not during that time, not for the whole 40 days, not in the gradual progression, but what does it say? When they had ended, he became hungry. Why was he not hungry until then? We don't know. It's hard to say, but we do know there's precedent for other people not being, uh, or being able rather to fast for 40 days and 40 nights these, in a supernatural way, Moses and Elijah. So it also is here with Christ. And Satan comes to him and tempts him three times. He gives him some ifs. He says in verse uh, three, if you are the son of God. And then he essentially says, if uh, you want this kingdom, then Worship me, verse 7, if you worship before me, it will all be yours. And then in verse 9, he challenges him again and says, if you are the son of God. The temptations are listed. They are three. Luke records them here, as does Matthew. And the first temptation is listed as turning stones into bread. Uh, The second here in Luke is listed as the kingdoms of the earth, and then the third is jumping from the temple. Matthew actually has the second and the third in the reverse order, and it seems from Matthew's uh, language where he says then and then and then that Matthew's is most likely the order that they happened in chronologically, and that Luke is just noting that all three things happened, not necessarily giving the order in which they took place. And so we take them here as Luke has them in the order that he's laid them out. And we start with the first temptation in verse 5, which would be food over trust. Food over trust. Now here the devil comes to him and he uses his favorite method, words. Words. The devil said something to him. The devil tries to persuade him. He tries to trick him using things that are not true. Things that may, as we'll see, be very close to the truth, but nonetheless, they're not true. The devil certainly does have things in his power that he can do from a physical perspective, 
to people, such as we learn in the book of Job, and God gave him permission and scope to be able to actually attack Job physically and, and his family. But the devil's main way of getting people to sin is to convince them of things that are lies, to convince them of things that are not true. And so he spoke to Eve, and then Adam went along as well in the garden, and so it is here that he tries to, to convince Jesus to sin. And he shows up and he says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The question itself is insulting. If I was in that position, and of course I'm not, and this shows why I'm not, but I might say, if, if I'm the son of God, why are you questioning that? But of course he is. And he's not necessarily directly questioning that. He's just simply saying, look, this is the kind of thing that someone who's really the son of God would do. He's just trying to get him to make this happen. The devil is insisting that Christ prove something to him on his terms. But of course, the problem with this is that it is in bad faith. He says, hey, prove this to me. You're the son of God. Tell this stone to become bread. Why don't you take care of yourself? But what if Jesus did that? Would that actually change what the devil did to him or said to him? Would that actually change his treatment? Would that make him any more likely to believe that Jesus is the Son of God or to follow him or to worship him? Of course not. It's just, as always, deception. Now there's a question here that you might be asking. Tell this stone to become bread. And you might say, well, I don't know of any commandment in the Bible against turning stones into bread. Do you know of any? I don't. I couldn't find them because there isn't one. And of course, part of that is because there's nobody in the history of the world, generally, unless God supernaturally empowers them, who would have that ability in the first place. You're not going to find it in the law because it wasn't a common temptation in Israel. They couldn't do it. But there was something wrong with this. There was something that would have been bad about Jesus turning a stone into bread, about him doing this supernatural thing to feed himself. Um, so let's think about this carefully. The reason why this is wrong is not because God um, expects everyone to go out in the desert and just wait for God to send them food. Just wait for it to show up. Although he did that with the manna in Israel. Um, Jesus is not here in favor of presuming on God to meet your needs when you make foolish decisions, sinful decisions, when you're not willing to work, and so on. In fact, there are passages in the Bible about that. And he's going to make a point about not presuming upon God when we get to the third temptation. Uh, the point here of the temptation and what would have been bad about it is Jesus is supposed to be hungry right now. Not everyone in the world is supposed to be hungry at that time or at all. But God has Jesus there himself as an individual person. And he is supposed to not have food at this moment. He wasn't supposed to get his own. God had directed him there for a reason. And he was without food for 40 days for a reason. Satan says, look, you're hungry. And you can stop that. You got the ability. You have all the tools to do this. Why don't you go ahead and do it? And Jesus says the answer is because that would go outside of what God has commanded for someone in Jesus' situation. I'm not supposed to do this. And this is instructive then because it kind of helps us cut through ways in which we might um, 
depend upon God or say that we're trusting God, but that's not necessarily the case because in some circumstances it would be wrong to do something, but in other circumstances it would not. For example, if you're married, it is sin to pursue a romantic relationship with a new person. But if you're not married, it could be perfectly valid before God. Um, If you are a child, it could be wrong to pursue whatever your heart's desire is, even within the scriptures otherwise, in defiance of your parents' authority. So you might say, well, there's nothing wrong with this for a person who is not under his parents' authority, but for someone who is, the same thing, the same activity can be wrong. We need to understand the particulars of our life circumstances and say, is this wrong for me in this setting? And that's what was going on with Jesus. It wouldn't have been wrong for Jesus later on or at another time to grab some bread. Here, he would have had to do it supernaturally and turn the stone into bread because there was no other bread around. He couldn't just go grow it. He couldn't just go make it. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't pick it up off the ground. It wasn't there. He would have had to do it in this way. And it would have been self-serving in defiance of God's purpose for him to bring this about. It would have been wrong. God had him in the desert in order to be hungry. He was going to take care of the food when he had the purpose to do so for him. And if he failed to wait, it would have been sinful for him, just as King Saul defied God by not waiting for Samuel to come off for the sacrifice. So Jesus understands this. No doubt he would have felt good physically if he could have eaten bread, but it wasn't the time. And the way that Jesus responds here is fascinating. And of course, this is well known by most of you, no doubt. But he answered him and he begins with these words, which are so powerful. It is written. It is written. The language um, could even be rendered, it is in a state of having been written. What does that mean? It means that it was written in the past and it has ongoing permanent significance. This is what it means for the scriptures to be written. Not that it was written before and now you can disregard it. Or that it lasted for a time. But that it is permanent and relevant. These are the first words he gives in response. For Jesus, this is everything. Everything in his life comes under this authority. It is written. That's it. The living word here exalts the final authority of the written word. No one, not even the son of God, is able to go against what stands written. And it doesn't matter how hungry he is. It doesn't matter how he feels. It doesn't matter that he is the most powerful one in the entire world. It doesn't matter. What matters before anything else is it is written. That bounds anything that Jesus is able to do. And so our first thought should go here as well. When you think about anything that you would do, anything you're asked to do, anything you're told to do, you should always have this framework in your mind where you say, is there something written about this? Does the Bible say something about this? And of course, sometimes you have to search and other times you just know. Other times someone might have to help you and say, hey, that thing you're doing, the Bible says something about that. Have you considered it? But we need to have this framework of everything has to take place within those confines of anything and everything that God has said. Jesus shows us here that this is properly the governing authority for anyone at all times and all places. He, as the one who is the most exalted, saying this some 1,400 years plus 
after these words were written by Moses, he shows us that time does not make this insignificant, that importance of the person doesn't make this insignificant, but instead everyone everywhere at all times must come under the authority of the written word of God. It is written. It was just as significant to Jesus as it was to those in Moses' day, and so it is to us as well. It is written. Specifically, what is written? Man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread or live on bread alone. Jesus here cites Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 in particular. A passage that is about the manna that Israel was provided with in the Old Testament. So when Israel came out of Egypt, they went out in a hurry and they were out in the middle of the wilderness. They had nothing to eat and they cried out, what are we going to do? And God says, every morning, six days a week, I'm going to produce on the ground this little stuff and it's going to appear in the morning, it's going to disappear as the day grows, and then I'll do it all over again the next day. And on the sixth day, he would do a double portion so that they didn't have to go gather it on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day of the week. This was the bread that Israel was fed with for almost the entirety of this, really the entirety of their time in the wilderness as they wandered around. God graciously provided for them in this way. Moses speaks to Israel on the, the, uh, when they're on the precipice of entering into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 8, they're across the Jordan. He's preaching his last messages to them before he dies. And he tells them these words in Deuteronomy 8, 3. He humbled you and let you be hungry. He let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. An amazing passage, because he is saying here that God put Israel in the same situation that Jesus is now in. They were hungry. God let that happen on purpose because he wanted to teach them something. He wanted them to learn the lesson that Jesus has obviously learned, that it is not about bread alone. Man does not have enough even if he is fed, even if he is full. The manna was intentionally sent by God to teach Israel, to help them to learn, to rely upon the Lord and not to forget him. And so that they would know that he would take care of their physical needs. These are the things that we're so often consumed with, aren't they? The physical needs. These are the things that we feel we need. This is why it would have been wrong for Jesus to do what Satan said. Not just because Satan said so, but God wanted him to be hungry and he wanted him to understand what God says about his own provision for Jesus. And he says, I'm not using my supernatural abilities for my own benefit. I'm letting God feed me on his terms. And Jesus understood the lesson well. He says, there is more to life than getting your physical desires, even your physical needs, met. Now, it is true that we need food. Would you agree? Some of you are starting to say, I need food now. It's getting near lunchtime. You better make sure that I get there. The statement from Moses acknowledges this, doesn't it? He doesn't say, man does not live by bread at all. Just read the Bible and you'll live for decades. It's not what he says. It's not a promise. 
He says man doesn't live by bread alone. And it's good in the circumstances when we're missing something, lacking something, when we don't have what we need, to understand that there is, uh, there is something here to what Moses said that applies to our situation. Where he says, uh, God let this happen to you in order to make sure that you learn this lesson. With Israel, it's a little bit more specific. But the point is, you need to learn these things. And very often it's in the time when we have something that we want in our life that God has not provided for us that we are pushed toward him. And that we, if we're responding rightly, will learn that lesson of what it is that God will do for us and what he says to us. And then, not just that, but what the priorities are. What is more important? He says, you can have all the food you want. Well, maybe not all the food you want, but in theory, you can have all the food you want. And that's still not what brings life. That's not what life consists of. Instead, it is utterly immovable devotion to God's word. That's what brings life. That's what man lives on. Later on, Jesus is going to say to a listening crowd in chapter 12, verse 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He says you can have all you want. You can be rich. You can be wealthy. But when you have these things, that's not what life is about. It's not about the stuff. What is it about? It's about living on every word of God. And so the problem is not that Jesus could never take any action to get food. This was a special occasion. It's not that we're wrong if we try to remedy the problems that we find ourselves in. If, you know, if we have something that we need and we try to go get it. It's not that. And it's also not that we should sort of in some vague way depend on God and just say, well, I know God's going to provide for all of these things. And I know God's going to do this work. And I don't really have to do any action on my part. It's, it's none of those things. Rather, Jesus had specific instructions from God on this. And to satisfy his desires in this way, at Satan's request and Satan's method, would have been to disobey God. And it would have been to distrust God. And it would have been to miss the whole point that what is more important than our physical needs is, are we obeying what God says? I wonder where you live as though all you need is physical needs. Are you... Like the Gentiles Jesus talked about in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says they just think about this stuff all the time. What do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? Or maybe it's other things where you say, you know, I have relational needs. I have, I have things that I need. I need, I have, I need people. You know, I, I need to have this or that thing in my life. Or I need fulfillment. I need activity. I need to be doing something. I need to be, you know, making a difference in the world. These are things that we think that we need or want. Instead, you should ask yourself, do you live like you need God's word as much as, and in fact, more than you need food? Doesn't mean that you won't eat. Doesn't mean that you'll spend as much time reading the Bible as you do eating, especially if you're a slow eater. It does mean that you live by everything that God says. It's what you think about. It's what you believe. It's what you obey. It's what shapes the way that you view the world. It's what shapes the way you view your interactions with your circumstances and with other people. It's what shapes what you think that you need and what you think is important. It's what shapes your priorities. It's what, sh what shapes how you respond when you have your physical needs met or not met. These are the things that God wants us to do. Living by God's every word means that your life is dictated and determined in various ways by what God says rather than by what we feel or think that we need. 
And so Jesus shows us here that he stands up to what Satan says and he says no. This is the theme that he uh, goes to over and over and over again. Satan brings him this and he says, no, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm not going to do this. Um, And he just brings the scripture to bear. He says, this is not the way that things are going to be. I'm not going to do what you have said. And you see this as we go throughout this as well. He says in verse 8, it is written. In verse 12, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' answers here are simple, but he believes them. And this is something for us to learn when we're thinking about responding to temptation. Many times we will take scripture and say, well, we just answer temptation with scripture. We just answer it with scripture. We answer it with scripture. We're going to see here toward the end of the passage that it's not enough to just know what the scripture says or even what it means, but we need to be able to know how it applies and we need to understand the circumstances in which it applies so we do need to know that but it's not just as simple as well here comes temptation I am going to just say some scripture as if all that Satan needs to hear to go away is the magic words of you quoting scripture that's not what Jesus does here what is he doing he is expressing faith in this truth he is saying I believe what this says Jesus, in this moment, is living according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He isn't just saying, well, here is some magic potion to send Satan away. I'm not just going to throw something at him that I learned in Bible school years ago and think that now he's not going to tempt me anymore. What has to happen here, and the reason why this is successful, is because Jesus answers him and Satan realizes he's not going to do this, is he? Jesus has convictions He understands not just that this is the verse that applies, but he is going to follow it and believe it. Jesus believes that man shall not live by bread alone. And this is where, in the fight against temptation, you must develop deep roots. It can't just be, I know this in theory. It can't just be, I know that this passage matches that temptation. It can't just be that. It has to be so much more. It has to be, I believe this to be true and I'm going to act like it. Man shall not live by bread alone. How is that demonstrated in your life? Do you practice living in this way? Or are these just sort of empty words that you know that Jesus said and that you're supposed to speak? So Jesus here shows us how to respond to temptation to be sure. But he shows us through this first temptation as he's going to do in the other two to come. He shows us how great he is. And he shows us that he is one who not only is the object of faith, but one who is himself full of faith. One who takes God's word and believes it. One who does what God says, who refuses to do anything but what God says. Who defies Satan, not by rebuking him, not by doing some kind of casting of a spell or anything like that, but rather by deep conviction of living according to what God says and what God has instructed him to do. This is the Jesus who is worth following, who must be followed, is he not? He is the one who is worthy of our trust. He's only beginning to show who he is. This is really the first action that we see from him as an adult. And he is 
we're just scratching the surface of Jesus and how worthy is he already of our devotion and of our following him and of our trusting him. This is the one who can overcome all that Satan has done to us. We know that Jesus became a man so that he could identify with us in our sin. We read about this in the book of Hebrews that he became a high priest uh, so that he could help the sons of Abraham and he could do so as one who sympathized with us, who is like us in every point except without sin. So when we are tempted, we can go to him. But even more fundamentally, we know that because he is perfect and because he came and never sinned, that he was able to offer himself up as a perfect sacrifice for us to place our trust in. And that when he died, it wasn't because of something he did, but because of something that he willingly took on for us. And that when he died, he was vindicated by being raised from the dead. And he is the perfect object of our faith. So when you see this, say, yes, I want to be like that. I want to do what Jesus did here. I want to have those convictions. I want to recognize temptation. I want to do what God says. But the first thing that we're commanded to do with regard to that is to turn from our sins and to follow him. And if you have done that, praise God. For helping, him, helping you to see the Jesus who is here. And if you haven't done that, no better time than now. And there is a necessary time to do this because he is the only one who is this way. He's the only one who can overcome Satan. The only one who has defeated death. The only one who can forgive your sins, but he does so in abundance. And I'd urge you to come to him and to cry out to him for salvation today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together and then we'll pick the rest of this up next time. Father, thank you for showing us Jesus and showing us his Uh, success against this initial temptation, his uh, success that he will have against all of Satan's temptations. And thank you that he is such a worthy object of our faith and our trust and for what he has done for us, our love, his greatness and his sacrifice compel us to love him with all our heart. And we ask that you might help us to grow in our love for him. Help us to know his worthiness Help us to sing his praises, and may you be pleased as we do so even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.